Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 25th, 2022. I'm Charles Han. I'm a filmmaker. I am here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hi there. Cinematographer and filmmaker Todd Blankenship. Hey. Producer, filmmaker, and editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. This week, we are going to be talking about MoviePass Returns. And is it still relevant in this modern world? We are going to be talking about censoring your film for China and the implications for filmmakers as China makes the outlines of the kind of content they're looking for more clear. And then we're going to be talking about hiring. It is one of the biggest things you do as a filmmaker, assembling a crew. It's one of the things you see people talk about the complications of all the time, and we've never talked about it on the podcast. And and uh, we wanted to talk about sort of our thoughts on it, most of us having done it for decades now. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. So the first story, MoviePass, the story that never ends. I feel like there was a while we were talking about MoviePass like every other month. It's been like a year. MoviePass is returning, but they're returning, let's be real, to a different world. MoviePass is coming back over Labor Day weekend. It's now going to be a tiered platform where you can pay different prices to get different volumes of movies. They're calling it MoviePass 2.0. I felt like now that web has moved on to web 3.0, I felt like 2.0 doesn't feel as cool as it did in like 2007. Dated. Yeah. Right? I was like, so it's like, there were like jokes about that with Ryan on The Office 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> and he now has a very successful indie film out. Everyone I know who's seen it says it's great. But regardless, you can pay between like 10, 20, or 30 a month. And that'll determine how many passes you can do. You know, there's also some conversation about you can watch some ads on your phone to get more credits, Ooh, yeah. but your eyeballs will be tracked, which I is like that one, <laughs> which is like, you know, it's like, OK, so you're going to be sure I watched it by tracking my eyeballs. Oh, OK. All right. <laughs> um, we are we're we're like now. Blade Runner can, you, can you imagine the first time you're watching an ad and it like automatically pauses when you like look at something else? Oh, my gosh. That sounds <laughs> so miserable. Yeah. But like we know it's like seconds away when that's going to happen right where like literally the act of looking away is gonna pause the like that i'm is sure it's black mirror that's that black mirror episode yep Ugh, yeah scary stuff I, well, so, I, I mean movie pass are the first people to rock it so we can hold it against movie pass we can call it movie pass tech when we run into it other places i just remember with that tech what i keep thinking about is how it could impact how we change editing because we might have a sense of when people are distracted or uninterested and it could change the dynamic of like studio notes or screenings or test screenings because they'll be like 75% of the audience was looking at so-and-so during this shot as opposed to. And that just feels like it opens this nightmare can of worms to me. So, yeah. Man, anyway, if we go down moving that road on. too far, <laughs> like I'm gonna have to find a do- like I'm gonna I'm gonna go start a food truck or something. I can't I can't deal with I can't deal <laughs> chef, with chef style. We're already enough layers down, uh, you know, into know, the rabbit hole where I'm like, this is getting stupid. I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> that it's it's a rainy day here. I'm all bummed out now as I'm just oh, like, no. oh. <laughs> but yeah, that sounds. Uh, I mean, that's that's definitely gonna happen. I, I I'm kind of surprised, honestly, now that you say it, that that's not already like common practice, like like heat heat maps for eyeballs. Yes, uh, heat engagement. Maps. Like, come on, that's that's right. That's like gonna be next month. I bet. 
Well, but at least part of, I mean, not that we're going to, we're going to get back to movie pass, I promise. But part of the whole process in all of this is at least in some places, there is still like, for instance, Apple is making their play on the marketplace by saying, we're the privacy people. A little light turns on when the webcam turns on that's built in. And like, it's easy to like, you know, and you can set app by app things that control it. So the reason why we haven't seen more of it is because companies make it a marketing thing that they're catering to privacy. And movie passes having it as part of the thing that it's like your camera, like your camera will be on and we're telling you that it's marketing it. But like, you know, what is there's some state has like super strict privacy laws. I think it's Illinois. And every once in a while I read an article that's like, hey, guys, remember to thank Illinois. All of these companies only do all of this because Illinois makes them. I think it's Illinois where they're they've just got like very strict privacy laws. Who knows why? There was probably like a very paranoid person who was like, nobody can see in my room. And uh, they happened to be governor and they made some laws happen. But the benefit here is that like all of this tech exists and it's like regulation and marketing that has stopped it. Because otherwise, like, you know, Chrome could always know where you are looking and could legitimately just like pause ads. I mean, they have some version of that tech now. If you're doing like a mandatory training, I've noticed mm -hmm. in the last couple of mm -hmm. years, if you're doing like your yearly mandatory, like you're not allowed to bring your gun to campus training, which all employees have to take, which remind me every year I'm not allowed to bring my gun to campus. If I try to click over to another browser, it knows it I've clicked over to another browser and it stops. So I think we're sort of circling around some of that tech for monetization. I mean, the interesting thing for me also with MoviePass is like they've accepted that they have a money losing venture. So they're trying to figure out other ways to navigate it. But it's like, in this weird pandemic marketplace, I also feel like the competitors exist. I saw a movie at Regal the other day with my daughter, and Regal has a thing where you can see unlimited Regal movies. And at the theater I went to, it was 21 a month. And I was like, right. wow, all right. That's like, if I did not have a child, that is like an unbeatably good deal. As somebody with a kid, I would yeah. lose money on that. As an AMC Stubbs Pass member, it's like the price of one ticket, unlimited movies, essentially. And I see so many through that. I, I think I was initially skeptical of this tiered system and I, I was like, ah, oh, it just feels like you're sort of do it, it feels repetitive. It feels redundant with buying tickets or, you know, being members of these other memberships within theater chains. But as a class pass member, I, you know, also thought that was stupid. And now I'm like, uh, addicted to class pass which is essentially same thing as movie pass but they have like tokens and you get to do workout classes so i i think there's something there that's interesting and then i am curious though this kind of ties back to like web three since we you brought it up earlier charles i wonder if the tr if there's like an element of transparency that movie pass is employing at least saying like hey this is how our ads are going to work and like they're just being very upfront about it and kind of like leaning into this like more transparent way of monetizing i mean i think that's a move i think it's like a smart move it's a savvy move like it makes me respect them more i could certainly see at a certain time in my life i mean once you learn how much advertisers pay for your facebook data like, I think everybody's had a thought of like, well, would you just give me that money instead of giving it to Facebook? Like, I'll watch the damn ad, but I don't want the money to go to Facebook. I want the money to go to me. So like in our in one argument here they're making is like, all right, watch five minutes of ads and you get a free movie. And I'm like, well, it's not really different than broadcast television where I used to watch like 20 minutes of ads to watch The Godfather and the ads would be in like the weirdest places. Yeah, And it's like, well, if I could just sit in the lobby of the movie theater and watch five minutes of ads ahead of time and then not pay for the movie 
23 year old me would have done that like twice a week yeah i mean so amazon prime has that where you can watch with ads or whatever and lately it's been like every five minutes you get hit with 120 seconds of ads and it's like why am i even putting up with this so yeah i mean it's definitely a thing one thing i don't know about movie passes do they especially in this new round of it is do they just have like partnerships with all the the major chains or is there just certain ones that you can do because I, I guess Gigi said she's a Stubbs member. I, I do the Alamo Draft House one where you get like three movies a week or whatever. But like, you know, they, they all have their own thing. So how are they setting that up is what I I, I always I wonder. mean, Movie Pass's whole thing has always been Wild West, where you just see whatever movie you want and then we reimburse you for it. And, you know, they were like their whole. So I suspect there are no deals here. Because I suspect they're doing the same thing they did last time, which is like, you know, they were always a bit of a, what is it, the underpants gnomes that were like, step one, collect all the underpants. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. And like <laughs> their original one was always like, we were like, okay, so how will this be a profitable business? And now the argument they're making is, is this is going to be a profitable business with data, which is mm-hmm. what everybody says. They're always like data, but like data is how Facebook is a billion dollar business. Data is like a profitable thing in certain scenarios. And if it's one of those things where they're like able to say to advertisers, hey, advertisers, not only will we build an amazing profile of who this person is based on what movies they see, we will also be able to prove that they watched the ad end to end. Advertisers will pay for that. I mean, that's why YouTube makes money. So I think that I suspect that they don't have deals with anybody and that it is still the Wild West of like, just go see whatever movie you want and we reimburse you for it. I have a feeling that they are offering a service essentially for part of a programmatic network. So advertisers can like opt in or automatically will go there. And and so MoviePass isn't going to be doing any. Remember when we talked about how they were like going to do like custom ad complimentary stuff for the movies that you're watching? And I'm like, that's not sustainable. But it seems like they're just putting ads on there now. Which that does make sense. That is the pro- what programmatic advertising is. It's a network and they're just adding more space to the network, just like, you know, YouTube, Google, any, anywhere you can see ads on the Internet. I think that that makes sense. And that is something that they can monetize. So, yeah, I mean, there are, it's a much more competitive space. But if you live in a what's funny to me is that most people live near a theater. Most people have like, like when I was in LA, it was Arclight. I lived right near Arclight. I went to Arclight all the time. I probably went five years without being in an AMC or Regal because I lived right next to Arclight. So like the the argument MoviePass seems to be making is, are you a filmmaker who wants to be able to go to whatever movie theater you want? And I'm like, but don't most people live sort of near a theater? And like, I would also go to other theaters that were one-off screens, like the Rialto and the New Beverly and others in LA. But like, I never went to another multiplex because why would like... It's not like any other multiplex would be so special. It would be worth a special drive to the Valley to go to the Regal. <laughs> and and MoviePass seems to be advertising. They're like, we're agnostic. But like, that's only going to matter to film fanatics in a very small number of places. Like if you leave equidistant to an Arclight and an AMC, those people, that Venn diagram of people are going to be interested. I, they, I mean, I don't know. I like that they seem to make everybody else do it. Like, I don't know that everybody else would have a subscription tier if it weren't for MoviePass. Have you ever wanted to watch something and it's just not available in your region? Have you ever been curious what UK Netflix or maybe some other country's version of some of the popular streamers has available that 
your local one doesn't? Well, there's something called NordVPN. And by using NordVPN, with the click of a button, you can access all kinds of content that maybe you didn't even know existed. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. So use my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool, and you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge shows, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. We all love watching and streaming all these shows, but we also care about our privacy, and NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. So say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection will kick in and delete it before it makes a mess of your computer or whatever device you're using. So don't forget that there is actually no risk to you by trying this because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, you get a full refund and you can pretend the whole thing never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool to get your subscription started today. Moving on. Next <laughs> news is we've got China being kind of upfront in an interesting way with how they want movies to be catered to their marketplace. And I mean, it is interesting to have this level of sort of clarity of, you know, China is making the argument that we're a big slice of your bar uh, box office. We have a lot of people still seeing movies in theaters. You're making money here. And so the vice minister of the Communist Party Central Committee's publicity department, which is a great job title, um, <laughs> is basically, I mean, that's a lot of words in a job title is basically saying like, we would like you to continue to improve your films on the basis of respecting our culture, customs, and audience behavior. And, and it is interesting to think about all of the nuance in that sentence and to talk about how this impacts filmmakers. Because if you think about it in terms of a couple of recent hits, the two biggest hits of the year for me in my world are like Top Gun Maverick and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Like these are two films that the most of the people in my life seem to have seen and talk about. And these are two films that have made very different tacks on this front. Like Top Gun Maverick went all the way like, if you haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, I'm not ruining everything to say that there is no bad guy. Someone, somewhere, who has access to fighter planes is doing bad things. They're enriching uranium. And they're in a <laughs> mountain pass. But, like, is it a country? Is it a rich person who can afford fight? Like, it is never named. There is no, because, you know, the Paramount wants to be able to sell the film in every market. They want Russia and China to be able to buy the film. And so they can't say you know, Russia and China are enriching uranium. And we've all seen what happened to Sony when they said, uh, you know, North Korea was doing bad things. So Top Gun Maverick made a very strategic decision to say the bad guy is out there and they're enriching uranium. And that is it. And they just move on. And you're like, okay. Whereas everything everywhere all at once was like, they, and they talk about the, the Daniels talk about this in interviews. There's a lead character who's a lesbian and like we meet their partner and it's an important part of the story and it's and like the relationship of them and their traditional parents like the whole thing is important and they talk in interviews where they're like this is built into the story such to the extent that we know it could not be edited out and it was a decision we made early on where we were comfortable with the ideas that if any distributors or territories weren't open to distributing a movie with such a central gay character 
we were just going to be like, okay, we lose that territory. We lose that distributor. No big deal. And it's like two very different choices. And it's interesting to think about that, I think, as filmmakers and storytellers, because there's a famous example this summer of a big film that has a gay subplot, but the gay subplot can be cut out in like very easily and was cut out in a lot of territories. And so you have to think about that as a filmmaker when you are designing your story, like, is this a plot that is like so essential to me that if territories object, I'm like, nope, you're not cutting it out. Or if territories object, you've designed it such that you're like, oh, yeah, we've already got the cut ready. Like, I think about this also, like, you know, notoriously back in the 80s, there was always the airline cut, which is much different now. Um, and there were filmmakers who were like, whatever you do is butchering my film and I'm not going to let you do it. But then there were other filmmakers who got very involved in the airline cut and are like, all right, if you're going to show my film on an airplane, I'm going to be involved in the process of how we tailor that experience. So if you want to take out the curse words, I'm overseeing the dubbing. If you want to like, and it is interesting to think about that as a filmmaker, like where you come down. Because, like, if a film is going to be shown on an airplane no matter what, like, don't you want to go in and do the dubbing yourself to get rid of the fucks? Or are you like, nope, there are fucks in there, and if you're taking the fucks out, fuck you. <laughs> These are the questions. <laughs> what, I mean, what's also interesting is kind of, you know, there's a movie that came out in 2021 that is the third highest grossing film of the, like, globally, and it was... It's called Hi Mom, and it's a Chinese film. And I bet nobody listening, I bet three people listening to the podcast has have seen it because you can only watch it in the U.S. on like a shady website called like AsianKiss.com. And because it's not released here. And it's it's interesting because it's like the plot is great and it's moving and it's like this universally sort of like a uh, really moving comedy about like a girl who goes back in time and gets to spend time with her mom. But the first half of the movie, like the second act, first half is like so culturally outside of something that would be entertaining to U.S. audiences. And that's like similar to what you're saying, Charles, like you could not cut that part out of the movie or actually maybe you could and just like skip to it and whatever. But like what it gets to ultimately is like a really amazing, fulfilling, like crying and laughing ending. And And I just don't know if we can be making things for global audiences and expect global audiences to love it universally at every beat in the story. Like that doesn't make sense because we are our own cultures. And so we need to like, I I don't like the sort of watering down to please everyone stories. Like can't, I wish that there was more accepting a story that is specific to a specific culture, but has a universal theme. And like, let's tell the best story for that story. Let's make the best movie for that movie. And, and it feels like it goes both all directions. Like people are, they, they want to have it all. China wants to have it all here in Hollywood. We want to have it all. And we want to please everyone. I think you're making a good point there that sometimes there's this fallacy that you have to please this massive all-encompassing audience to be successful. And I think every everything everywhere all at once is a great example of how you don't have to do that. Uh, but in a weird way, so is Top Gun Maverick. Because going back farther in time, so they had a relationship with, I think they're called Tencent. Tencent is this huge Chinese conglomerate. They fund a lot of movies. That's like they have Tencent Films. It's a big company. They have a lot of money. They were involved in funding Top Gun Maverick originally and pulled out 
due to concerns over the super patriotic aspects of the film. Not even like, again, it's so interesting in this day and age that the movie does not have a true villain, that it's just this nameless, faceless thing, as Charles said. It's fascinating. But that aside, and it, and it actually opens the door to doing that over and over again, because you you don't have to other a specific group anymore. You're just like, yeah, bad guys, whatever. They're, they're behind masks. You'll never see them. It's brilliant. But anyway, that aside, so Tencent pulled out. And then if people remember, there was a trailer and there was concerns over the patches on Maverick's jacket because I think he had a couple flags that China wasn't happy about him having on his jacket that had to be taken out in the trailer to appease the Chinese censors and audience. I believe they were allowed back in, and that is part of why it didn't. It was censored in China overall. But so it's a complicated relationship. You should, anyone listening can fact check me on all of that. I could be wrong about certain things. But that the gist I'm trying to get at is that there's an intertwined complex relationship between China and our major movies. And there's a lot of money to be made out there. But I think the point is, you can make a lot of money making a movie a lot of different ways. And there's evidence to support that. And it also speaks to this other fallacy that I don't like in the industry, which is that we just are supposed to report on and discuss and be impressed by these raw box office numbers. They leave out any kind of, any kind of context. How much money a movie grosses nowadays is not a meaningful sum. It's just decontextualized from how much money the movie cost, how many theaters the movie shows in, how much was spent on advertising, how many countries it plays in, how many screens it's on, how many, uh, there's so many factors. And we don't talk about it historically in terms of any kind of context, like how many tickets were sold. Like there's no way, I'm sorry, there's no way that these top grossing movies of the last 10, 15 years are impressive when you compare them to the amount of people who paid money to see movies that had these box office records in the past. So we are always, because Hollywood is always kind of like, in, in a very like sloppy, lazy PR way, they're trying to shift it so the message seems like, oh my God, Top Gun Maverick, biggest movie ever. Not really. Not really by any meaningful metric, right? It, only by like raw numbers that came in in dollars. And given what we charge, <laughs> like given how much that's changed, but this idea that we're like just focusing on certain specific things out of context, I think also feeds to the problem of thinking. You have to appeal to this massive beast of humanity in every imaginable way. Instead of saying, like, everything, everywhere, all at once, like, we're going to spend less, we're going to make it for less people, we're going to hit our target, like, we're going to zero in, and we're going to be a massive success within our context. If you weight those kinds of things against each other, then it's like, man, you can get so much done off so much less and find so much success with something like that versus what you have to do to create a Top Gun Maverick. Like, it's so hard to thread that needle, right? There's so many things you have to do right and so many people you have to please and so many sensors you have to worry about and all of that. So it's just like, you know, we, we need to look at and discuss what was success under a different context, I think. I'm curious, like, if we can, like, brainstorm in real time a little bit of, like, what would be a way to measure success in this industry that is 
uh, feels very kind of like stuck in this old school way of thinking. Like, could it be view through rate, which we're seeing advertisers do? Like, you know, from a streaming perspective, I don't know if we'll ever get that. But like, I, I outside of Netflix, I know they were measuring that. But like, what would be another way to put value outside of those archaic numbers that don't provide context? I, I think it's a good question. It also reminds me of like how we still talk about things like Nielsen ratings sometimes, which is completely ridiculous. <laughs> but I was going to say that I think that the lesson for the average filmmaker out there is that you do not need to appeal to a multitude of slices of the world to be successful. You don't need to make a four-quadrant movie. I saw a couple really funny Twitter threads in the last few days that highlighted movie releases, one highlighted releases in 1993, and one, I think, was 1986. And the point was that in those years, there were so many different kinds of movies that were released and were considered good and were successful. There was a big, big variety of like genres, of, of subgenres, of targets, of types of, like all of it, all of it on the buffet table. And yes, there's so many more places that content and et cetera, et cetera, exists today that back in 86 and 93, the movie theater was kind of king. Yes, there were only three channels or six, whatever. But it's still true. All those audiences didn't vanish. There's ways to reach them with niche targeted stuff, maybe even more ways than before, because you don't just have to go through all the gatekeepers to have a theatrical release. So I think my point is like, you don't just have to do it the conventional way through the conventional manner with the conventional wisdom. Like, I think you can find audiences and find success, quote unquote, make some money and get people to see it without being Top Gun Maverick. You know, I think that that's kind of like Top Gun Maverick was like struggling and, and crazy wild success and very fun movie. Like, I'm not taking any of that away from it, but it's so hard to do that. What they had to spend in terms of time and money to achieve that is astronomical, far beyond what any average filmmaker is going to look at doing. So what can you do? You can find your audience. You know, you can find your niche. It exists and it's willing to watch things and pay for them. I mean, I also think we can question the idea of measurability at all. Like, there's this huge instinct to measure everything because you want to make a case for the next thing, right? So it's like, okay, I had this many viewers on my last thing, so you should give me more money for my next thing, yada, yada, yada. And like, you know, filmmakers I love have done very well with like, you know, I, I like James Cameron movies with the exception of Avatar and Avatar's fine. I just don't love it. But like, he did a very good job of like, look, I, with this budget, I made this much money, so you should give me this much money for, and eventually you get to make Titanic, which you'd always dreamed of. So I understand talking to the bean counters about their beans because bean counters love counting beans. But like, I also think like there's a constant discipline that as filmmakers and artists we have to do is to remind ourselves that we're not the bean counters and that like, that's someone else's game. And like, you know, if, if you watched your movie make someone cry, that can be more important to you than a thousand people half watching your movie while half scrolling yeah. through Twitter. I think it's more important to think about like, what can we do as filmmakers to tune out the constant attempts to count all the beans? Because, you know, as yeah, Nancy Myers always pointed out in a lot of her movies, she's like, it is so ridiculous to work in an industry where the financial metrics show up on the news. 
And it's like, it is weird. Like if you work in other industries, like it is not a Monday morning tradition for them to report on book sales. Like obviously people know right. Stephen King sells a lot of books, but like I, I've never seen a like box office results for the new Stephen King blockbuster. You know, it's just like man moves a lot of books, freelance author, enjoyable books, has some, has some issues. And it's like, it's really weird in the film industry. I mean, that's the PR of the movie industry trying to say, like, you got to go see it because it's the biggest and the best. It's an advertising tool, right? Yeah. But I think what's interesting about that is that, like, the discipline of everything about modernity is the discipline of what we tune out, right? And so for me, like, the discipline of tuning out, like, it's so it's so weird to think. There was a, if you read Wilder's interview, who did the Wilder interviews? Was it Cameron Crowe? Um, you know, cause there's yes. Sufal Hitchcock and then there's Crow Wilder, which like, what a bummer for Billy Wilder that it was Cameron Crow. <laughs> but you know, we'll, we'll leave that alone. But like you read those interviews and there's a point where Cameron Crow's talking about some movie and Billy Wilder's like, oh, that movie was a flop. Who cares? And I was like, I was like, Billy, come on, man. Like, like your movies rule. Even the ones people didn't get rule. Like you're Billy motherfucking Wilder. Like, you know, there's a there's that Robert Altman quote where he's like, I don't like to pay attention to how much money my movies make. I love all of my movies like I love all of my children. And sometimes I love the more difficult ones even more. And I'm like, Robert Altman also complicated and not a perfect person or filmmaker. But like, I don't know. I like that. I like the like it's our job to do everything we can to try and tune out measuring it because we're here to make some weird magical art lightning thing. And then let the bean counters try and shake the beans to get more beans in the bean bottle. I think what your anecdotes point out is that actually it's great to have different measurements of success individualized to what you value. And we shouldn't allow the dollar number to be all of our values. If Billy Wilder wants that to be how he measures success, because I think it was in his personality that he he was kind of a people pleaser and he wanted audiences to love him and and he's made a lot of movies audiences did but i think it probably genuinely bummed him out if a lot of people didn't go see his movie and love it so maybe that's what you know floated his boat but like certainly that is not what robert altman cared about I, i'm confident in that so i mean maybe we all need to allow ourselves to have our own definition of like this was a success and if you think you have one cuz i think i've told this story before i remember for a long time thinking if i'm ever sitting in a theater and i'm watching a movie i made and people are enjoying it, I will feel like I've had success. And that happened, and I was not feeling like I'd had success. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that ain't it. Like, I don't know what it is, but that ain't it. Like, so I got to keep looking because I promised myself that that was all I was looking for. And definitely at that point in my life, it was like, no, you were lying to yourself or you were just wrong. So I think it's important to be flexible in how we define it. But yeah, don't let the, don't let the industry and the headlines define it. And certainly, like I like I was trying to say, I think maybe not super articulately, but like there are lots of audiences that can be your success. So you don't have to have the one that people talk about the most or that seems the biggest or that like they 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 definitely are out there and people find them like Tyler Perry found his audience that didn't include probably anyone on this podcast right now but like it was big and loves his work and like created that success and that happens all the time i mean the same a lot of people didn't think for example the passion of the christ was going to work he had a pretty big audience out there waiting for it mm-hmm. that loved it. it also didn't include me but like <laughs> i i'm just saying like they're like i'm not the no one person those big audiences exist for you folks you can find them. That's that's my point. Yeah, I think it's just like focusing so much on the 
the theater experience as a conduit for measuring success is kind of an interesting thing to sort of challenge because I think we don't often think enough about the longevity of a piece of art and like how many different sort of forms it can sort of fold into over the course of time. And like, you know, even though we might not be able to get certain movies in Chinese theaters, like everything is slowly globalizing in a lot of ways. I don't know how much China is like, you know, throttling what can be seen on the internet and stuff, but I mean, it, things can still find that those audiences or whatever. And I think it's, it's interesting. I think about this a lot as a filmmaker um, and George, you kind of talked about it too, because I, I also had that same measure of like, you know, I, I always say like, there's, there's this movie I've been writing for a long time. And if I don't get to make it, I won't look at my life as a full success. Like, it's just like the number one goal. I have to do this thing, but I just know that moment's coming where I, I do the thing. And, um, I mean, hopefully mm -hmm. God willing, like, I, hopefully I get the chance to do that and see that movie in a theater with an audience. But I know that moment's coming where that's like, it's like, you know, did I make a successful movie or did I make like three people's favorite movie of all time? And, and that would be like, to me, it's like, I don't know. I don't know where I, we, we it's just like this sort of, I don't know. I don't, I, the, the whole chase for just like having the next top gun thing is just kind of the dumbest thing ever to me because like obviously it, it's just top gun it was tom cruise like of course it's gonna make a lot of money and, and it came at like kind of this perfect you know cross-section of all these different things going on in the world and you know i don't know I, I one thing i'm really curious about i don't know anything about it but like was everything everywhere all at once like how was that screened in china was that allowed there and because i that that also had some lesbian oh i don't think so it, I don't think it screened there. But I want to bring up a point about Top Gun also that you just mentioned, which is that it's singular. I saw a great clip from George Lucas' interview with Charlie Rose on Twitter the other day. I spent a lot of time on Twitter, by the way, if you guys hadn't realized <laughs> this. But Charlie Rose' interview with, with George Lucas where he was talking about how, in a way, Star Wars kind of ruined things, which we're all familiar with this idea. But he was like... There wasn't really precedent. I had to convince people to do this thing. It was very original and strange, just like American Graffiti. And what happened afterwards? Everybody tried to imitate it because they don't value creativity anymore because everything's a sequel. So he was just banging the drum. Many of us have, have been banging for a long time. But it was just funny hearing it come from him. And it reminded me that, like, look, Top Gun's a sequel, right? But Top Gun is super singular. Tom Cruise was painstakingly involved in every single detail of that movie, micromanaging it to be exactly what it was in exactly that way, and so much time and money went into it and delaying releases and all these things that, yes, only he could do. Probably only he could do it. So even though it's not like original and that it's, it's a new concept, it's like it's not repeatable. That's not a repeatable success. Mm -hmm. And I think in the arts, it's kind of silly to look for repeatable success. Like, it, it's just... It doesn't work that way. Like, there's, you've got to have, like, Iron Man, like, Robert Downey Jr. was paid less than most of the rest of the cast because he was a liability and the studio didn't want to cast him because of his history. And, like, Robert Downey Jr. launched Marvel. Like, it's not really repeatable. You know what I mean? It, I mean, Marvel was repeatable because they made a hundred of them. But only well, because they were no. willing to do something that was not, like, went against the grain. Also, you, like, everybody, everything, everything looks possible in retrospect, but like as someone who is a comic book nerd in the 90s, let us never forget pre-Iron Man Marvel movies. Like go back there, like right. you, you you look at every one of those charts of the Marvel Cinematic Universe 
And they always start with Iron Man. And they're always like, here's the map of the last 15 years of movies. And here's the order you got to watch them in and all of that stuff. But I'm like, motherfuckers, go back and watch Captain America from 1994, which I fucking did <laughs> and rented it at a video <laughs> store because I was a nerd. And like, that shit's garbage. That shit is bad. <laughs> I didn't even and, know it existed. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I might have to do a viral Twitter thread about like, pre so like Marvel, Marvel, the most successful thing of all time, although it's actually not the most successful thing of all time is Pokemon. Um, and then Hello Kitty outranks Marvel, but Mar like Marvel's in the top 10. And like, if you're looking at America, Marvel's like very successful, but not as successful as Hello My Kitty. My kid's really into Pokemon. Pokemon is still. I'm huge. really into Pokemon. <laughs> Pokemon is the biggest franchise of all time by numbers. There we go back to bean counting. We can't help it. I can't help it. <laughs> it's in my genes. But if you look at it, yeah. like Marvel was not a good idea. Like when they finally broke Iron Man and they were finally like, oh, you can do a good movie from a comic book. You've got to remember, like, the stereotype we have right now about comic book movies is completely different than the one of the 80s and 90s, because the vast majority of them in the 80s and 90s were screamingly terrible. The yes. only good one was Batman. And everyone was like, well, yes. I guess Tim Burton's just a genius and did a non-repeatable thing. Mm -hmm. And that was where they were. And then Spider-Man came along and people were like, oh, you can do good movies because Sam Raimi. And then Iron Man. X-Men was pretty good. Yeah. Because what's his name? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's his name? We don't need to say his name. Yeah, we can, we can skip his name. But like yeah, X-Men, Spider-Man, around the year 2000, they were like, oh, this is doable. And then Marvel's like, what if it's not only doable? What if you can keep doing it? And, and Marvel kept doing it. But like there was a promise that this was going to be repeatable. Now there's a promise it's going to be repeatable and they keep trying. I don't know. It is interesting. But they're kind of running out. They're kind of running out a little bit. Like, the like, and I think the point is just like, we're, we're kind of far afield from the original thing of just like China, of course. But I think that the idea is like, there isn't a, a box that you have to fit it in. And to be honest, going outside of the box that everybody's asking you to fit in might be your best chance at success. Well, I always like to tell my students, <laughs> historically speaking, gatekeepers never let you in gatekeepers only open the gate to come out because you're doing something interesting outside the gate and they want to see what it is like Absolutely. it is mm. it is full inside i like there's that. plenty of people for every opportunity there are plenty of people who've already done five movies that are available because it's hard to get movies made so the only time a gatekeeper is going to be interesting in interested in you is if you go do something so fascinating like even lucas with american graffiti which was a low budget movie but like if you haven't seen it it's great go watch it american graffiti rocks I, and I have like, to say, I I just literally last night watched American Graffiti, so it's just weird that we're, I, I I'd never seen it before. So but that movie, that movie, just weird great. that we're talking about it. I just watched. It. Oh, yeah, it blew my mind. And and honestly, I just wish we got more George Lucas not making Star Wars stuff because it was well. It was really I mean, good. he did go on to do Radio Days after Star Wars. He right. did attempt to do post Star Wars stuff. I mean, look, the the it's long discussed. The like, what can you do once you've had that success? to go back and do something interesting. I respect that both Coppola and Lucas keep trying. Like they've both tried to do weird ass shit for the last 20 years. Lucas finally gave up, but he legit did keep trying to do weird shit. And Coppola is still trying to do weird shit and like good for both I, of them. I just, I also want to throw out there that like, I feel like I'm always a Lucas defender, but I kind of feel like when he started that first Star Wars prequel, he was like, I'm going to do weird shit. And everybody was like, oh my God, that is so bad. And then he caved a little bit. And I, I mean, it was bad, but he wasn't following his formula too well. With that first movie, it was weird. That was a weird movie. And like he had some wild ideas that were not very good about movie making at that time that he was trying out. So, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I think you try it. Sometimes it sometimes you hit gold. Sometimes you whiff, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, it is also sort of an interesting question to, yeah, to think about like, to, I, I'm not, even, I was going to try and bring this back to China and be like, how does George Lucas navigate? But like, yeah, sometimes the topic starts <laughs> in one place and ends in another place and that's okay. So that's what we're going to lay out. I'm going to say right now that we don't have enough time to pick up our third subject, Luke Hiring. I'm going to punt that to next week. I'm going to do a field call yeah. here to talking about a, a little hit that we haven't talked about at all in this podcast, but I feel some obligation to talk about for a variety of reasons. Ooh, what and is it? It is, it is the biggest hit of the month that we have not mentioned. Heat 2. Oh. And... oh, I thought you were going to say Marcel the Shell. Oh, yeah. oh, was Marcel the Shell a hit? Did it did it rock? Uh, I don't know if it was a hit. I, I, I don't know about the beans, Charles. <laughs> Just... But it was a hit Charles in my heart. Charles and his beans. It was a hit in my heart. And, uh, and everyone who I know who has seen it has loved it. I, well, I talk, we talked about out. it last week. Or two weeks ago. No, and quick, I just want a quick shout out as long as you mention it that I interviewed the cinematographer of Marcel the Shell, and it was a really revolutionary. They had nobody had tried the way they tried this, nobody had done it before. So it's very interesting. If you're interested in how they did that, I did not realize that I was watching something that they kind of went off, off book to do. They were like, here's how we're going to do this. Nobody's done this this way. But yeah, let's talk about Heat 2 because let's start off by saying like horrible title, right? I love. I it. mean, I love. I, I actually, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm on board. Just as long as the next one is called Three, right? <laughs> no, I, I love it because it's just like, all right, fuck it. Too heat, heat, too, too heat furious. Fuck it, heat two. I like that. I wish it had been called Fuck It Heat Two. <laughs> yes. Oh uh, yeah, because we don't, we don't need um, a colon something something like. What what's the bad guy in the first one's name? I can't remember. The Wayne I mean, Grow, is Wayne Grow's Revenge. Wayne Grow, <laughs> Wayne Grow's Revenge. Have you guys? Okay, so have you? Have you all read it? No, but no. it's no. like it is. I, I'm I'm deep in the middle of a different book, but as soon as I'm done, it's it's definitely the next thing I'm gonna. It is actually pick. next in my read pile as well. I'm okay. excited. So my on one of my many text threads, someone started one that was just about reading it because it was like, and it's like super super film nerds, you know. And it was just like, this is amazing. And I, the ones who have finished it are like gushing. So I think it's probably real good. That's what I'm going to put out there. Like that that people that I know that are like hardcore movie people and think Heat is amazing. And by the way, Heat is amazing and underappreciated, right? That movie's uh, fucking what? awesome. Underappreciated? The like film just, nerdiest. Do talk about yes. it? It's like film, like Heat. It, as someone who's in a film school, the, the 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 next generation of film nerds enjoy them some heat. Okay, I just want to make sure it's not like because it's like one of the great gangster movies, like crime movies ever. Well, like, and, the, and I I feel like it doesn't get talked about that way. And then but Thief, maybe maybe it's just because James Caan just passed. But I feel like Thief, Thief and Heat gets so much. I, I just watched Thief as well um, on Friday night. So we're just talking about all, all my recent watches. Uh, Welcome to the new podcast. What's Todd been watching <laughs> Todd lately? Been watching? Well, Todd, it's we should tell you that we're tracking your <laughs> eyes. seems like it. And we've been watching what you've been watching. And so that's how we figured. Thief, Thief was really cool. Thief blew my mind. Uh, but it, it, you know, it, it was a little bit like, you know, watching a movie about a giant asshole. But it was it was it was good in in certain ways. Like I loved I lo I mean, Michael Mann's like uh, uh, atmosphere building is just second uh, to none. There's no one else so well who, said. who builds yeah. atmosphere and tone like he does. And like just to you know, he was one of the early ones using uh, Tangerine Dream in the score. 
and all that kind of stuff with Thief. And I was just like, I was so into it. Like there was this one shot where it's Dare it, it, I like, say mise en scene. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. There we go. No, I mean, because it's also all a Jean-Pierre Melville. Like he's like, especially Thief is such an American Melville movie that like I think calling yes. it mise en scene or as I've so, you know, um, Anthony Bourdain is always called. So in cooking, it's mise en place. It's like this setup of your cooking station is mise en place. In film, mise en scene is like all of the elements in the scene. And uh, Anthony Bourdain always calls it your mise. His like very New York accent, like, oh, your mise is your mise ready or whatever. <laughs> so in teaching recently, I've been like, well, in your mise, but for mise en scene, not mise en place. Because at least partially, I feel awkward saying mise en scene. But your mies, and yeah, he's like perfect with his mies. Yeah, I don't. Like I, don't I just feel like he's on set and, and, and on set. I feel like we'll, <laughs> we'll just try talking about oh, some mies. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. A grip might kill you. Let's talk mies. <laughs> a grip might pu- Let's punch get our you. Mies on point, yeah. But I feel like so. <laughs> I I love that you mentioned John Pierre Melville because Le Samurai feels so much like the the father of a lot of what Michael Mann does. Yes, like it, it just feels like, and and if you go back and watch that one. Folks, if you haven't, you're you're gonna drool because yeah. it's just so awesome. And then watch Cirque and Rouge. so much. And then watch Army of Shadows. And then just spend an entire Sunday you, like, oh, yeah. And it's just one Army of those of ways. Shadows. This is one of these beautiful things that happens in cinema history, where like something started in one culture, right? Like kind of like crime movies. And maybe there were these French filmmakers who were interested in learning and like liked the tour theory and like the way some of these guys were making these hard-boiled like kind of noir post-world war ii things and then they did a spin right and then that's where you get some of those movies from melville and then you get people like michael mann who are kind of coming back to this american idea of the of the thing but then adding a layer to it because they loved melville and the samurai and all that stuff and that's heat and like i just that's one of those things about movies as like a global, like sharing cultural evolution that I just love. Can I can I wrap this podcast up with my favorite obscure Jean-Pierre Melville knowledge? Please. So Jean-Pierre Melville wanted his movies to be blue and he wanted his actors to look like corpses. But he felt like it looked too fake to put blue filters on the lens of the camera. Because if you do that, everything looks blue right? The skin looks blue, paper looks blue, everything looks blue, and he felt like that looked too fake and too flat. So here's what Jean-Pierre Melville did. He would build the set exactly as he liked it, and then he would take an orange gelatinous gel, and he would cover the set in this orange gelatinous gel, giving it an orange tint. And then in post-production, he would take all of the orange out, because back in the day, you couldn't, like, with modern color grading, I can, like, go into a person, and I can say, make that person this color. You can't do that in the 60s. I mean, you could, but it was very hard. So he would take all the orange out of the scene. Then the set would look the right color and the people would look like they have no skin color. And Ooh, like, that's fucking man. awesome. It's insane. I, <laughs> I did it not is, know that. And it's, and it's one of those things that like I have on multiple projects tried to do and I've tried to like recreate it in classes. And it is, first off, who the fuck thought that up? Like you're in, like you're bats. It is also very hard to do right. But, you watch Le Cirque Rouge and you're like, oh, that's how that looks like that. Because there's no other way to make like the samurai look like that in the 60s. You could go see everybody like, go watch those movies yeah. uh, whose listens and and write in about all of it. So cool. I'm actually and making a list right now on my Google watch <laughs> list. So I want to rewatch Thief now really badly. There's this one. There's this I one gym shot. Kong. It's right at the beginning where it's like raining 
and it's like yeah, I, in the alley yeah, yeah I, was, I was just like that is like one of the coolest shots i've seen in a long time um yeah love that movie and it's from a long That's time right. ago isn't that awesome and uh army of shadows is is one of my all-time favorites back back to the melville thing yeah also army of shadows opens within a whole opening sequence that's supposed to be in the rain and clearly it wasn't rainy enough for him so they just superimposed rain on it and it works <laughs> it's like <laughs> huh. oh, nice well, melville Melville. Do you think they said we'll fix it in post? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually the, the genesis of we'll fix it oh, in post. Oh, man. <laughs> we got to get the we'll fix it in post translation to French and just have that be a shirt. Yes. Like a no film yes. school shirt. We need this podcast needs more merch. I'm just going to say it right yeah, now. Yeah, we do. All right, listeners, yeah. hit us up on Twitter. What is the French equivalent of we'll fix it in post? And we'll make one of those, what do they call it? Tea public shops for this podcast. Yeah. And we'll have we'll fix it in post in French. And, and I'll wear that fucking t-shirt. And all proceeds will go I'd to our it. movie pass subscriptions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh i'm on the internet at charles hain all of the places h-a-i-n-e i make youtube videos on techie shit i make movies and stuff i tweet mostly about bikes <laughs> i'm at lost in graceland and gghawkins.com and i don't tweet that much but i do follow charles on twitter and recommend following him <laughs> uh, i'm todd blankenship you can find me on instagram and youtube at am i a filmmaker and um I'm I'm about to follow Charles on on Twitter. I I haven't done that yet, so I'm going to do that right now. And I'm George Edelman, and you can find me on Twitter at George Edelman. And uh, I'm also going to follow Charles. I don't think I do <gasps> Charles after all this time. What I, I would recommend you, you forever. Follow. <laughs> you do. I followed you I don't for know. years. I'll check. I'll check. I like I'm a so Twitter many troll, of your so tweets. Yeah, people should be careful whether or not they follow me because I'm just out there being ridiculous. But anyway, speaking of not ridiculous things that are helpful for everyone. Go to nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Email us your ideas for merch and your questions. Editor at nofilmschool.com. And thanks so much for listening. Thanks.